The Anchism Podcast, brought to you by our proud sponsor, Kixinto. As Canada's premium reseller of authentic sneakers, Kixinto offers free shipping in Canada and the USA. With a wide selection of the most exclusive Jordans, Yeezys, and other premium products, you can trust Kixinto for all your sneaker needs. Don't miss out on the latest drops and limited releases. Visit their website at www.kixinto.ca to shop now and step up your sneaker game. Hello and welcome everyone. Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest. With my political interests and my views, I'm very scared of actually understanding what side of the spectrum I am on or I am eligible to be on any side or not. But today, for clearing that up and giving us a clear picture of the psychological traits and the political information, satire, and all of those things, we have Dr. Danigal Young. She studied her PhD in University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School of Communication. And she is a professor of communication for political science in the University of Delaware. Now, someone who has had some sort of knowledge of Indo-UK politics and being a union president of a university himself, I would love to have someone who talks about satire in politics, who talks about humor in politics. So it's an honor to have you on the podcast, Dr. Young. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for that introduction. Before we jump into the more heavy and logical questions in your perspectives, I would like to ask your journey into the field of communication and politics. How were you as a kid growing up and how did you develop this interest? It, it's funny because when I when I talk about who I was as a kid, um, I don't know that there's I don't know that there's a more perfect line to draw between who I was as a kid and what I do now, because I um, in, in the United States, you know, we have the, the primary system and historically the first state that votes in the primaries is New Hampshire. And I grew up in New Hampshire and it's a really weird place to live because all of the presidential candidates go to New Hampshire, a tiny little state, which is mostly very r rural. And uh, they show up about a year and a half before the presidential election and they go they show up at like churches and church basements and people's living rooms and and you know fairs <laughs> and uh so i met a lot of presidential candidates growing up and i felt like politics was very close and and i loved it and i loved the the idea of it i loved the idea of public service and people dedicating their lives to public service for a very long time i thought i would run for office um but I also love studying and I'm a very good student and I was really interested in journalism and media. Uh, so I was a political science undergraduate major at our public university in New Hampshire. And I also studied French there. And then I went for my PhD at um, the Annenberg School at, at Penn, mainly because I, as an undergraduate, had studied political philosophy 
And so I, I read all of these accounts by like Locke and Hobbes and, you know, all the all these different accounts of human nature and what makes people do what they do and what makes people think what they think. And then my senior year of college, I took one class that was more social science oriented and less philosophical. And I was like, oh, wait, you can test these propositions? Like you can actually do a survey or an experiment and you know obtain some kind of evidence that shows whether or not your claim of how humans tick is correct or not. Um, and I was like, well, that's what I want to do because you know any anybody can pontificate, but uh, but I want to test stuff. So th so then I went to uh, graduate school and my my tenure at the University of Pennsylvania began right around the same, I think it was the same month even maybe that John Stewart took over hosting the Daily Show on Comedy Central. So it was 1999 and I had done improvisational comedy for years and was very interested in the effects of satire on public opinion. And so it was, it was luck. It was luck. That's then what I, what I studied and focused on for my PhD. In terms of your time at the University of Pennsylvania, how was it? What was the sort of role of politics there? Because it's known the, and the school of communication is known to have figures and people with amazing point of views and philosophies. I don't think that I understood um, when I showed up there just how amazing it was. I think um, it wasn't until after I left that I realized that everyone in my field is reading the works of these people that I had as my professors. Um, you know, to... First of all, I, I'm a public school kid, and I thought the University of Pennsylvania was the state public university of the state of Pennsylvania. And so when I went there and I got in and they gave me funding, I assumed, oh, they must be desperate, you know. <laughs> and uh, when I found out, oh, it's actually a private university, it's an Ivy League university, it took me a little bit to understand that this was not like your average institution. And so I had the benefit of taking coursework with Elihu Katz, whose book, you know, Personal Influence, really was just, you know, groundbreaking. Um, folks like Joseph Capella, Kathleen Hall Jameson, you know, Kathleen Hall Jameson, who's, who's writing on political communication from, you know, the 80s and 90s was the first that I had even heard of the field of media and politics. Um, it, it was just an astounding place place to be. And you felt very close to sort of the heart of the field. And um, at the same time that I got into the program, I auditioned for an improv comedy group in Philadelphia and got in. And so my, literally in, in August, 1999, I was starting my graduate coursework and training with Comedy Sports Philadelphia. And to me, they're very intertwined, right? So uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it because you, you know you hear that doctoral programs are all consuming and you need to be very focused. I don't know that I would have succeeded in my doctoral studies without having an outlet like that, that tapped into a very different side of me 
that was very playful and open-minded and open-hearted. So I, I, I always urge my students, my doctoral students to have, have avocations, have passions outside of your coursework because it will make your research better. And uh, does that also help you to be more aware about people's psycho psychological traits and that's what you focus on more because probably when you're doing improv comedy or when you're on stage there are people who have had a 60 hour week are tired are done with the political system have no belief have no belief in the way the country is running have an extreme point of view but you who might be on the different side of the spectrum with politics and your beliefs could still make them laugh with the with the satires or make fun of their leader and they would take it lightly so that, that do you think that effect that comedy has also influenced your journey in question so the the improv that i do is decidedly apolitical it really is very much about daily life and situations and absurdities so in that regard it it's not satire it's 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 just raw humorous juxtapositions of daily life and but i think that watching in the audience and watching different dynamics across different kinds of audience members definitely helped me start to think about what are some of the what are the, some of the obstacles to getting people to enter the state of play and you know looking at when there's a couple that's on a first date for example and they're in your audience um you can often tell by the body language if they are going to be willing to laugh and have their guard down because if they're stressed or anxious they're not even giving themselves over to the show and so little mm -hmm. tiny moments like that like observing human behavior i think a lot of a lot of uh, performing arts folks are experts in human behavior because they have to be um same with uh stand-up comics i think stand-up comics are really good readers of human behavior because you have to be to anticipate how people are going to respond and how in the moment how you might need to pivot based on a response um so i definitely think that that shaped how i started thinking about uh human psychology and the different psychological traits that might shape humor appreciation etc um but the you know the work that I did, especially like 20 years ago, looking at the psychology of satire and how does political satire shape public opinion, knowledge and behaviors, that really came out of a fascination with the evolving satire genre at that time that was started really by you know John Stewart and then later by Stephen Colbert. So doing a deep dive into the content of those shows, how they were tackling some big issues of the day, um, especially the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time, and you know studying the audiences of the shows and the content of the shows to try to make sense of what is the role that these these programs are playing in the lives of regular people because. Yes, they're a source of levity and laughter, but they're also a place where people are going to just feel like, oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who feels like things are bananas right now. 
Um, and I thought that that's such an interesting informational function because that's not what we go to news for, right? And that's not what people go to analysis, like partisan analysis shows for. Like, yes, they want to feel like they're not crazy and they share the point of view with the host, but not in that sort of playful way. Not in that sense of like, oh, we're all in this together and we're commiserating kind of way. Um, so that I think that that time period is what brought me to the study of, of that. It's quite interesting how people want that relatability that, okay, I belong to somewhere. And with the growing phase in my generation or in the generation that my kids will grow up, what will they face? Because now they are in a situation with where it is extremely polarizing to even share your view. And if you are in a particular university group or an environment where you beg to differ with your point of view and it's politically incorrect, you can be cancelled. You can... And it's funny how you spoke about comedy shows uh, and night shows how politicians or presidential candidates used to come on and how it used to help their image massively because after a 12 hour 16 hour shift people just want to have a beer and watch their favorite politician or watch the person who agrees with them who believes that okay i am the one who will do the right things for you there's one of the things that i love about how you just framed that question was that i think um a lot of times social scientists forget the the burdens of everyday life for regular people you know a lot of political scientists for a long time political scientists wanted to believe that voters are always rational actors and they're doing cost benefit analysis across you know where do these candidates stand on these particular issues and where do i stand and which one's closer to me and um the way that you frame that question is interesting because you're right. People work hard. They have long hours at their job. They have concerns about their families. They have concerns, I mean, in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, of course, healthcare. You know, maybe I have elderly parents that I need to care for now, etc. Whether or not you're going to support or oppose a particular policy that might not affect you here and now imminently can feel very distant from your life. And so people are just trying to get by. I think that that's how I approach a lot of what I study is that regular people are doing the best that they can. Or even more accurately, regular people are doing the best that we can. Because I'm in there, right? I'm just doing the best I can. We're all doing the best we can. So you're correct that when it comes to these kinds of programs, if there is something that is entertaining and low stakes and it doesn't take a lot of cognitive engagement and I can feel like, oh, I'm kind of getting politically informed because here's a political leader on this show being interviewed. Um, that makes me feel good about myself and it makes it it, it, it is low stakes. Now, a lot of times those kinds of interviews also, you know, humanize the candidates. They allow them to, usually they're self-deprecating. They make fun of themselves a little bit and it allows them to be regular people. Um, I'm really intrigued by the pushback that Jimmy Fallon got 
when he had Donald Trump on his show because Donald Trump, first of all, Donald Trump does not make fun of himself. You know, he does not engage in self-deprecating humor. Um, I did a, a study with a graduate student of mine and we did content analyses of, of the kinds of humor that um, political candidates use on talk shows. And by and large, yeah, they use talk shows as a place to be human and poke fun at themselves. Donald Trump does not. Donald Trump used, and this was in 2016, he used political talk shows as a place to do what he did everywhere else, make fun of other people, which I think is kind of interesting. But yeah, so Jimmy Fallon got a lot of pushback because he did with Trump what he did with all of his political candidate guests, which is throw him some softballs, humanize him, ask him about his childhood home, ask if he can touch his hair to see if it's real, you know, um, but the, you know, a lot of the American left was not okay with that. And it felt like a violation. And I think it felt like a violation because our late night and comedy shows are generally left-leaning. And that's why it felt like a violation. Do you know, it's funny how you spoke about the talk show where Donald Trump was humanized and all of those things. And people, when these shows are being filmed or people are talking to these personalities or these so-called public servants, <laughs> I laugh when I say public servants, it's very funny. Uh, anyways, with the attempt to humanize someone who has officially billions of dollars, would never understand what the problem is that a random person's facing, any regular person's facing. One of the most, just to get large for a second, one of the most um, glaring effects of a televisual culture on politics has been the increased focus on personalities and individuals over policy. And we know that that's true, that, you know, because of the nature of television and internet, you know, stories about public policy and platforms are not really stories if they don't have people. And we like stories that have protagonists and the natural protagonist in most journalistic narratives are the politicians. So you have stories that focus on these big elite players. But, you know, there's a wonderful book that was originally published in 1985, which you, you probably know, Neil Postman wrote uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which, you know, he wrote about how television was robbing, well, robbing culture, but especially democracy of ideas and of substantive ideas because the the dominant language of television, he argued, is entertainment. We judge things by how entertaining they are. And the dominant epistemology of democracy should not be entertainment. It should not be how entertaining is someone, um, how appealing is it? It should be, does it solve problems? Does it make you think? Is it increasing the strength of the cultural fabric? Um, and one of the things, I remember when Donald Trump ran 
in 2016, a lot of references to Neil Postman's book came back because, and I think largely it was because Trump, Trump's focus was always on crowd size, ratings. He's like, oh, my, my appearance got better ratings than his appearance, right? He only understood the epistemology of entertainment, right? The language and logic of entertainment, not the language and logic of democracy. And it, be, it was clear in how he described all these things. Like, oh, you're a loser. No one even turned up. It was boring. Remember when he talked about the um, January 6th commission that was held? And he said, who wants to watch that? It's boring. As though somehow democratic processes should be judged by their entertainment value. And, and I do think I see him as sort of this perfect icon of... of how televisual culture can be problematic and how televisual culture rewards, by definition, rewards authoritarian populists who put themselves aside from the system and they say the whole system's corrupt, but I can fix everything because I'm awesome and amazing and I'm just like you. But Dr. Young, isn't it not just with Trump? It's I would not take the name of the politicians and the country. I'll take the name of the countries. When you see France, when you see a lot of countries in subcontinent, when you see India, or when you see any other country at the moment, there's a lot of wave of left wing. Even in the UK, yeah. Rishi Sunak's acting like he's not from the minority. Of course, he's not a. He's a minority of billionaires. It's a minority, <laughs> <laughs> and. It's just so funny how I see people. Uh, what, I'm still at the fact that you were, you know, you outlined how Trump spoke things about entertainment. And now I've seen a pattern with Biden. Uh, I think there was someone called James Corden. He's a British late, late night show yes. host. Mm -hmm. He ended up on at the White House and he's asking uh, President Biden, how quickly can you order an ice cream? I, just there's a war going on in 20 plus countries that we know of, and that's the question you are asking to a US president who sometimes does not know what to say at times, and it's quite embarrassing. Even, even in India, that's the case. And Indian journalism now is, I sometimes, you know, uh, Dr. Young. When I want to watch some sort of comedy, I just put on my news channels in India. I'm like, what are these guys doing? I'm not joking. The really? level of journalism has gotten terrible. A lot of what I think is at the heart of the, the problems in American journalism and media has to do with, you know, part of it is the, is the logic of media itself, the logic of televisual culture, but also probably more so is the economics of our media system. When you look at the media systems in the United States over the last 40 years, you're looking at a massive industry that has gone through a huge amount of consolidation, where we used to have really pretty stringent laws of ownership that you couldn't own more than a certain number of newspapers in a particular geographic area. You couldn't own more than a certain number of news outlets or, or affiliates, broadcast affiliates. Um, 
Those rules disappeared in 1987. We also lost the Fairness Doctrine, which said that if you are a broadcast outlet, you had to give equal time to both sides of an issue. That disappeared in 1987 under Reagan, when a lot of these things disappeared. And then more of them disappeared with the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And what you have now in the United States is such a concentrated set of corporate owners that and, and as those corporations have grown and grown, their holdings have gotten bigger and bigger. They own across newspaper, website, television, streaming service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as they get bigger and bigger, the pressure for profit from every individual holding goes up. And so you have all of these places that are potential sources of information and enlightenment, but they're squeezed for every drop. And they're squeezed through, through obviously the two means in economics, right? They need to bring in a lot of money and they need to not spend a lot of money. So they need to bring in a lot of money, which means asking stupid questions of the president, like what ice cream do you like? Right? How does that bring in a lot of money? Well, because the assumption is if you make it too boring and too serious, then you're dumbing, you're, you are, you're limiting your potential audience to only those people who are super experts and super interested. So you got to make it appealing or make it sensationalized, right? Or the way that our media environment works now, because there's so many little niche outlets, make it partisan. And that's where I see things are super off the rails and dangerous is that you have the media outlets that are partisan and feeding into a social identity that is us versus them, creating these emotional responses, creating this sense that, oh my gosh, my way of life is under threat. But all of that stems from media economics, all of it, right? It, it, it doesn't have to be this way. It's not like our destiny. Our media environment does not need to look like it does. It doesn't. It is about the economics governing the system. It was a left-wing channel, which was, we can call, him, call them a left-leaning channel called the NDTV. And that is now owned by a billionaire who is a good friend of the current political party and that was the only left-wing channel left which actually showcased the problems or say unemployment uh, what's happening in the country uh, media and political relations and which did not have absurd headlines to attract TRP and attract more people to just watch it for the sake of it it's now owned by the Adani group the NDTV and he's one of the richest people in the world and also supports the BJP in their own way. And so it's very confusing for me to understand that the only left-wing channel or the only left-leaning channel, I would say, is now owned by a billionaire who has potentially right-wing leaning. And so I spoke to a journalist at NDTV and I asked her this uh, question. She said, and she, she, she said it without blink of an eye or anything. She said, Never have I ever had a story changed because of that. I was like, that's great. Well, that's great if your story or 
that's not influenced despite being owned by a corporation that well th- yeah think about what we have in the united states think about the legacy press the washington post you know democracy dies in darkness the washington post like the the revered and respected washington post which is owned by jeff bezos of amazon he's i mean i'm not sure what that list of the top 10 richest people looks like but he's there um now there was a really really interesting interview that i heard with um the former editor of the post marty baron who used to be the editor at the boston globe and he's known as a very very tough editor who is very loyal to his journalists and reporters and values editorial independence and lets them do the work that they need to do for honest journalism um now early i think that he just came out with a book and that's what this interview was about but he was talking about how trump wanted to meet with him and jeff bezos and you know baron said he thought it was interesting cuz the way that trump was insisting that he also wanted to meet with jeff bezos made it clear that he thought that jeff bezos had some say over what got published in the washington post in the way that marty baron was approaching the conversation he said it seemed like trump didn't understand that jeff bezos has no editorial control and no say over what gets in the post now as an optimist i i would love to think that that's true i would absolutely love to think that that's true I'm not sure how when you have an individual who owns a mega corporation that benefits from consolidation and streamlining and efficiency and certain kinds of labor practices and all this stuff how can that ethos not affect at some level like there's never going to be a conversation where somebody's going to call and say hey there's a story and you need to change it because it's going to look bad like that's not how things work right but at some level isn't there a sense that it will probably affect the editorial direction in some way in some I, way I, i mean and I, i'm saying that without empirical evidence to back it up but i i guess my sense is simply there has to be a better model and and we know from work in um journalism journalism history and journalism studies that the democracies that are rated as the most robust in terms of freedom of expression diversity of thought representation equality or um equity of of voice they tend a- across the globe the countries the democracies that score highest in those things are those that have robust independent public media infrastructures right and people get all squirrely cuz they're like public media does that mean it's government run no it means that there is money that is set aside from taxpayer dollars to support an infrastructure of media and journalism that does not have to try to you know do table dances for eyeballs basically right like that's what you want you want a public media infrastructure where the kind of stories that they're able to do 
are not as under pressure from profit motives. And that's what that allows. And it's very interesting that you highlighted that because when you are running a corporation or when you have access to infinite funds, you have the ability to influence things indirectly or directly. Whether it be a small thing and small changes make a big difference, as we say. But coming on talking about Jeff Bezos not having any say in what the Washington Post it's amazing, it's wonderful, it should be this man, he's a great man if, if that's happened. But he's in all of our houses. He's He has all of our data, what we are eating and how is that coming on the bloody internet? Sorry for my language, but how is that coming? If I'm talking to my wife about the best Italian restaurants, why is it coming on my Google ads of suggestions? Why? How? Why? Is, is that not concerning? So, you know, it, it's interesting because I have seen there are so many anecdotes like that, right? Where folks say, oh, this is so crazy. I was just talking to my spouse about this and now look what's on my phone. And people get quite conspiratorial, which, you know, which makes sense. I'm not sure that we know, I'm not sure that we have evidence that your phones are listening to you, okay? However, I think that we know, we definitely know from Facebook and Instagram that the terms and conditions that we click on when we start our accounts that then we forget about because 10 years have passed um, allows us allows them not only to track what we do on that platform, but what we do across every platform. And I think people forget that. So let's say that you did a Google search for that restaurant, or let's say that you um, it was in maybe in an email. I'm not sure to what extent they're allowed to use content of email to target ads. I'm not sure. That's an open question. But if if you put it out there, it is it becomes part of the data set of Anch, right? So it, there is a giant, the people who are going to end up being bazillionaires are the data brokers. So the people who own the giant data sets where each of us is a row, right? Here's Dana, here's Anch, and all of the columns are codes for every single flipping thing that we have ever done or looked at or ordered or browsed by or, you know, put in in terms of dimensions of a bookcase that I'm looking for on Amazon. So the people who own that data are going to be super, super rich. And right now, one of the entities that owns that data is Meta. When you look at the value of Meta, it is amazing. And you look at the amount of money that they make in advertising, it's cuckoo. When Facebook started, um, I remember starting an account, I think it was 2007 or eight. And, you know, they didn't have any ads on Facebook. It was like, oh, how are they ever going to make money? Well, they didn't, right? However, when Sheryl Sandberg joined the company and when it was clear that they were going to go public, What's the point of going public? The point of going public is that they're, you're going to have shareholders and you're going to have to make sure to give a return on investment to shareholders. Well, what's the economic model if none of your users is paying? The economic model that they realized 
especially once they added the like button, which was very early on, they realized that we are a user data juggernaut because people are telling us things about themselves by their behaviors. And then we can use all of those things to target them with ads. So when they say, you know, we're not selling your data, they're being honest. They're not selling our data. What they're doing is they're allowing advertisers to come to them and say, I want to find people who um, have a combination of being a soccer fan and they like to garden, but only in pots. They don't want a vegetable garden. They just want to garden with little pots and in the shade. Like you can have like the craziest, most narrow little sector. And they can say, we, we can find those people. We can find those people for you. And in the most from from a psychological standpoint, what's most interesting to me about this is that in order for that engine to work, in order for those targeted ads to get to the right people, which they do, what they need is for us to constantly be doing things on the platform. And the way that you get us to constantly be doing things on the platform is by making us feel things. And this is why, you know, my a lot of my work now is about the role of social identity. Social identity, how we think of ourselves as a member of a team, is a very emotionally activating construct. Because if you threaten my team, if you make me feel proud of my team, or if you make me feel like my team is under threat from some other team, that is going to make me feel angry, that's going to make me feel engaged, that's going to make me want to say stuff and share stuff. So the kind of content that taps into social identity is the kind of content that gets us to leave a lot of breadcrumbs. And voila, the algorithm rewards identity igniting content because Facebook is not a social media platform. It's an advertising company. No, it's, it's quite funny because Dr. Young, we came back again to belonging and sense of identifying with something <laughs> yeah, with all right. of that that you summed it up of finding now social media has made a environment online where no now you no longer have to go out to watch improv comedy on the weekend now you can just watch it on your phone now you can find a group of people who understand your humor now you can mm-hmm. find a group of people who want to do a particular exercise or an activity and you can be a part of something now you can identify as what you want to identify yeah social media is for you and there's so much access which is sometimes scary and whilst you were talking about how it's become an advertising platform uh, a really interesting line came to my mind where i read somewhere that online privacy is a myth just like democracy <laughs> wow yeah it's a good line it's, that's a good line you know this when you talked about the um social media empower us to find these these groups these teams based on shared passions um i think that that's where social media can tap into like the best things, right? When it's uniting people that are all interested in the same kind of hobby or the same kind of artwork or the same sport. Um, the 
the problem that we're facing in the US that unfortunately many democracies have faced over centuries is that increasingly our political parties are overlapping with socio-demographic characteristics and cultural characteristics, which it didn't used to be. So in the United States, the Democratic and Republican Party were pretty mixed, right? Ethnically, racially, etc. cetera. Uh, but over the past 40 years, that's changed. And when your political parties overlap with religious sects or certain ethnicities or races, it invites a whole host of problems at the level of sort of primal social psychology because it's no longer a battle of ideas it's a battle of identity and it's primal identities that get to the heart of how we think of ourselves and why we're here so democratic theorists have long suggested that that kind of political sectarianism right where your parties signal like religions or ethnicities or races that's bad it's, it's bad for democracy and in the u.s increasingly that's happening so the republican party in the u.s is increasingly white evangelical christian um but also increasingly rural like they live in, in the country and not in the cities and they're culturally conservative but the democratic party is increasingly diverse and secular and agnostic and suburban and urban so the problem then is that the the social identities of right and left are are so that well lily mason calls them mega identities because they're political mega identities they're like these two umbrellas that go over all this other stuff and when that happens you have the possibility of being readily emotionally activated and ignited because your your sense of a team identity extends across all these aspects of your life. Um, so when you think about that in the context of social media, just to loop it back around, because these political mega identities make emotional activation more likely, think about what they offer to media systems. They offer a ticket to making a lot of money because now you have the possibility of activating right versus left and it immediately triggers this whole cascade of other stuff and it's efficient and it's anger inducing and it can generate engagement and attention and it mobilizes people to action so you know while political strategists and political elites use these things to mobilize supporters and mobilize movements out of threat um our platforms can use them to mobilize people to click stuff and post stuff. So it is politically advantageous on the one hand and it's economically advantageous on the other. So this, when I talk about in my book, this process of identity distillation, it is how our political world and our media world operate very synergistically right now to fuel these bad behaviors. Um, but on the optimistic side, because I'm always an optimist, I suggest that because all of those dynamics are predicated on what they think we will react to, 
we do have the capacity to disrupt it. We have the capacity as individuals to push back and to reward different kinds of content and to try to disrupt our performances of identity. Um, we just need to be dedicated to that practice. But uh, it is the practice of being aware of what we are being told and being able to question it. For example, if I am reading something on the British Broadcast Network, on the BBC, I make sure I read something on the Al Jazeera. I make sure that I read something on the CNN, on the Republic TV or something that I get a perspective from different sources and actually verify and have that own understanding. I don't want to just look at the British broadcast channel and believe what they're saying. I just don't want to look at the CNN and believe what they're saying. I don't want to look at the Al Jazeera and believe what they're saying. I want to be able to make my own judgment. And I am an eternal optimist, but that doesn't mean I will feed off news that they're saying, oh, this group is such a danger to our country, right. but now we have dealt with it. I don't yeah. want to believe what they're saying. Because but it, ta it takes a lot of restraint, though, right? I mean, because you, you, we're all human and we feel, especially if there's something that taps into a core aspect of who we are, we feel our identity get ignited. And it it is very difficult to push back against it. But the the there's a practice. It's actually there's a trait, a psychological trait um, that I think of as a practice called actively open minded thinking which is something when individuals ha hold beliefs or attitudes, but they don't hold them so tightly, right? They're always open to the possibility that there may be something right around the corner <laughs> that might tell me that my belief is false. And actively open-minded thinking suggests that that is a practice that that you engage in all the time, that your default setting is simply, this is where I stand right now, but I'm always thinking, I'm always challenging. And so what you're talking about then, as you engage with media, is having that, it, it takes a lot of restraint, right? Because you're saying, I'm going to consume these different sources. I'm gonna recognize that I'm emotionally activated by this, that I feel threatened and now I'm mad, but I'm going to wait, I'm gonna verify, I'm gonna look across different sources because there's always the possibility that there's different information out there. But, but Dr. Young, you realize that they have a very subtle way of presenting the same information. Everyone's talking about the same thing, but the language, but the language of a right-wing channel or a left-leaning channel or a right-leaning channel is so different than the actual case. It just, both are educating us or informing us or disinforming us about the same thing, right? Um, but there's such a subtle way of doing it. And you also spoke about how it generates a reaction and how they want people to hate each other and pick a side, otherwise you don't love your country. Pick a side or you're not American or you're not Indian enough. And it's, it's quite interesting with politics, but in in uh, do you believe in what Denzel Washington said about media? If you are reading the news, uh, if you're not reading the news, you are uninformed, and if you're reading the news, you're misinformed. So do you do you, 
Do you no, have any? I, 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 no, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that because you know if you are if you are not reading the news, you're probably misinformed too because you're going to have attitudes about things. You're going to be creating them in the absence of information, and you will be informing yourself probably based on your pre-existing biases. So you're going to if you do not consume information, you're going to simply be filling in the blanks based on your own confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, right? So uh, I would say that's that's not a good option. Um, in terms of where where should we go? What should we do? I mean, there, there are some sources that are better than others in terms of how they present information, in terms of how they try to not fuel that political sectarianism. Um, but most importantly, I think, from as individuals, I think that if, you know, I don't know about you, but I know that for the longest time when I would get on social media like Twitter, I would feel that this was the place where I need to make sure that I am careful about saying things consistent with my team identity. Um, and I need to make sure that I engage in that way and that I shoot down the bad guys and talk up the good guys, right? That is a destructive lens to bring to political discourse. So if we as individuals become democratically minded as we engage with content online, it means that you are trying at all times to not increase the, that political divisiveness, to come to understanding, to not feed the beast, to express your point of view with caveats, with humility, to express the fact that, you know what, this is where I stand right now, but I, I'm eager to learn more and I'm not sure if I have all the information. So if you have other sites, please, you know, share them with me. We have been in a political media world that has tended to punish that kind of engagement. Um, because people are called wishy-washy or weak because, you know, pick a side or you're a bad person. I think if we model that kind of behavior and we reward it and we say, you know, I so appreciate that you framed it that way. That was really inspiring how you framed that. I think that we can create a sea change in how our information environment engages with humility and open-mindedness. And there's a lack of tolerance now when it comes to and that is a constant or a subtle change that has been brought up over years that if you don't agree with us, you don't belong here or if you don't agree with our perspective, you're wrong and that is the kind of behavior which turns people off, which pushes people off from even sharing their own perspective and building their own identity or building their own opinion they have to lean towards something, so many people are just believing what they're told without having yeah. the ability to question it. Whether it be communities, whether it be cultures, whether it be religions, whether it be media channels now or social media platforms. But I think that if we start thinking about how our, the demands that we're putting on celebrities or people in our world to you know, put a flag in the sand and identify themselves as either with us or against us. I think if we could look in the mirror and say, where does that come from? That comes from a feeling of threat. Where, why do I have that feeling of threat? Is that real? 
Uh, you know, in my book, I talk about how we have these needs for comprehension, control, and community, and that those are driving us to be attracted to information that's false. And what they're doing is th those things are, are driving us to be attracted to information that makes us feel really good about our team, it makes us feel like our team's in control and our team is the good team and we're the morally good team. Um, but, you know, taking a step back and saying, what, what is the basis upon which that is built? Why do I feel that way? You know, am I sure that that is what I want driving the demands that I'm placing upon people? We, we just, we all have the ability to, to slow this engine down. And, uh, and that would be my hope. Now, misinformation and disinformation are challenges that we are facing worldwide, whether it be the US, whether it be India or the UK. What are some measures that we as individuals or the approaches we can take to verify what we are reading? And, you know, how can we promote media literacy? How, how, how we as individuals who might not have political knowledge or who might not keep up with what's happening in the world on a geopolitical level daily, how can we uh, be aware or make ourselves self-aware? At the individual level, there are three things that I recommend. And one is this, this practice of actively open-minded thinking or, or displaying intellectual humility. That is always being cognizant of our own fallibility and always being cognizant of and, um, you know, open to acknowledge that we might be wrong always and that's in fact what i love about about that is that it's kind of the spirit of scientific inquiry as well the spirit of scientific inquiry is to get closer to truth not to prove ourselves right but to try to always prove ourselves wrong because you're actually trying to identify what is empirically true now we're never going to actually get to ultimate truth but hopefully if we keep trying to break our theories we'll get there but that's the spirit of intellectual humility um, the other things that I recommend have to do with identity disruption. That is, if you feel that you have an identity that is very in-group or out-group, allow for the possibility that the folks who you perceive as in your out-group may not be as extreme or as monolithic as you think. In fact, we know that policy positions are generally a lot more nuanced then these large umbrellas would lead us to believe. So always give the benefit of the doubt, always allow a seat at the table so that you can engage across those categories of people um, and you will likely be surprised. And those kinds of interactions will have the effect of diluting your own uh, political identity and then thereby reducing your appetite for identity-driven wrongness. Um, and same when it comes to what, what I mentioned about in online spaces, we can disrupt the sort of saturation of identity in our online environments by being a little more honest in our own performances of identity. If you if you kind of check all the boxes of one particular political category, but you hold this one political view that doesn't really fit exactly with your team, You maybe you're being quiet about it. Maybe you're kind of, you don't want to get yelled at, so you keep it to yourself. But maybe you owe it to your community in the information environment to be a little more um, forthcoming with the ways in which you don't fit. Because the more that we do that, 
the more that the deck becomes reshuffled and the more that political identity becomes disrupted in ways that will be good for democratic health. I agree with you. Uh, one last question, Dr. Yang. I know that you have to rush and you have other meetings and work to do. Talk us about your current book, Wrong, How Media, Politics and Identity Drive Our, Our Appetite for Misinformation and you're publishing it with JHU Press. And uh, tell us more about the uh, book and what you're trying to achieve with that book. So in, in Wrong, that's where I advance some of these solutions that I just mentioned. And what I try to do in the book is I offer a combination of a sort of so social psychological explanation for why we're attracted to information that's false. But the second half of the book looks at our political media world and explains as I did earlier in our talk, explains how the economics of political media make social identity activation really lucrative, really profit-making for platforms and, and news organizations. And so by explaining it in a framework, a comprehensive framework, it encourages us to think about how we can use certain avenues of influence to disrupt it to try to change the calculus that our political media infrastructure uses in the hopes that we can then become less attracted to misinformation, but even better, we can create a political media world that is not so bifurcated and is not so um, drawn along the lines of these political mega identities.